In December of 1519, Martin Luther first trained his sights on redefining the sacraments in a series of sermons and treatises he wrote to help the common people better understand how faith works in the church. Duke George best reflected the feeling of the supporters of the papal position when he called Luther's writings both scandalous and heretical. But Luther was not finished. In the fall of 1520, he released The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, a thorough attack on the church's teaching on the sacraments. In 1519, Luther limited himself to just baptism and communion, but in 1520, he's now redefining every one of the sacraments. In the last episode, we covered Luther's treatment of communion. Today, we'll cover the other six sacraments. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yeagley. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the review of the history and the content of the documents from the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. And as we just mentioned, today we're going to be continuing our discussion on the Babylonian captivity of the church. This is a great document released by Luther in 1520 that follows along the open letter to the Christian nobility, which was also released in the August of 1520. So uh, where the open letter redefined the relationship between the religious and the secular, the Babylonian captivity of the church seeks to redefine the sacraments. Uh, now, you really sort of have to take a minute. We'll have to take a minute to sort of understand the position of the sacraments in the medieval church uh, to to really get the full power of the Babylonian captivity of the of the church. Um, to get that, let's take a minute to sort of. You can even go to the modern. Catholic I see you catech- brought your catechism I with you. I did. I, I actually have a bunch of Catholic books. I did not here. bring my catechism with me. My, I should have. This my one, Catholic catechism. Oh, you have a, ca- a good catechism? I do. Oh, I didn't know that. Mine's green covered. Yours is probably... Mine is the um, the from the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults brought oh, okay. by the bishops. So I, I don't know. If so in that, one. you will find a quote that says, the whole, tertur- the whole liturgical life of the church revolves around the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacraments. And so, so if you, now, if we think that, so the Vatican is describing the whole liturgical life of the church is revolving around the sacraments, and now Luther is writing about the sacraments, this is, well, what is this? It's sort of the central function of the church. And, and if, if it's, if we're, if we believe the Roman Catholic definition here, and I do, you know, that this is what they, that's, so the whole liturgical life of the church revolves around the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacraments. You know, that's everything. And if Luther is going to write about what is everything, he is, well, it's a direct attack on the central function of the church in his time. And to be honest, I think there's still, when people ask, what are some differences between Lutherans and Catholics, I really have to point to the understanding and purpose and role of the Lord's Supper in the the life of the church. And, you know, it's funny because I, when I was growing up, right, I, I didn't go, first of all, I didn't start out Catholic, Lutheran. Uh, I, uh, I and, and growing up, I looked at the church as a place where you sort of learned right from wrong and a place where you, you know, got together with other people and you did good things, you know. And I never, it wasn't until I grew in my faith that I realized that really the central function of the church is the proclamation of the word of God. This is when I was a Lutheran. Yeah, to del- the, the delivery of the promises of God. Yeah. 
And to see the sacraments in that lens really is what the Babylonian captivity does. And we're going to look at each of the sacraments and see how, as Luther walks through them, each time he introduces a sacrament, he does it through the lens of how do we best communicate the promises of God to people in a way that honors what Scripture says? So there really needs to be, uh, and I, I'm, I'm sure if I felt that way as a as a young Christian, as a young Catholic, and as a young Lutheran, you know, yeah. if that was where I was in my head. You learn right from wrong, and when you mess up, you know where you can get right again. Yeah. And, and, but that's, that's not the function of the church. That's not the function. The function of the church is the proclamation of the good news and the promise of Jesus Christ. And the sacraments are, a f- are, are part of that promise in Luth- in the Lutheran definition. And even in the Catholic definition, uh, they're, they're seeing it as the central function. So both the Lutherans and the Catholics see the, the sacraments as central to the the work of the church. We are a sacramental church. Uh, We are a church defined by the sacred ways that God has promised to work. Now, the Roman Catholic definition of a sacrament is uh, sacraments are powers that come forth from the body of Christ, which is ever-living and life-giving. They are actions of the Holy Spirit at work in his body and the church. So what that means, at least what I think it means, uh, is that that's sort of like the the Roman Catholic sacraments are those moments when God's power works with us to accomplish something we couldn't do on our own. And I could have swore I read that someplace in in, uh, Roman Catholic, in all my studies of Roman Catholic And that's not the same definition that Luther's going to work with. Um, So Luther says that a sacrament has to have a physical component some sort of physical activity that acts out the spiritual reality that is occurring. And for Luther, this is um, the idea that the sacraments are an extension of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ is the Word of God made flesh in our world, the sacraments are to be a way, as a church, we experience the incarnation of Jesus. So it's going to be Word and flesh. Oh, okay. So that's where the, that's where the need for some sort of physical component yeah. comes from to see this confidence that God works in this world through the things of this world to accomplish him his things um, the way Luther expects sacraments to have a physical component is really for me um, a positive view of creation to say God can work through these things now another definition of sacrament a Lutheran definition of sacrament that I stumbled on, was that uh, sacraments are promises given to us freely and equally by God for our spiritual strengthening. Mm-hmm. And, and that, So the key word there is promise. Yeah, the, the critical word is promise. And it's given by God. It's not something of human design. Um, and it's not something that is just a, a human arrangement, but we're doing it because God has given it to us. Right. Now, now the, the thing is, is that, that that word promise is a critical difference between... When you go back to the the Catholic view of sacraments, which is those moments where God's power comes down and and intersects our lives with the the church as the body of Christ as the life giving and the life renewing yeah. work in the world, and, and this is where the Lutheran view is that it's well no the the sacraments are just the the first and foremost the promise the promise of God, and one of the one of the things that you know. Uh, I would say, like, when, when people get married, it's not like God makes a promise that that marriage is going to work. That's not a God 
that's not God's promise. Yeah, and when we talk about the sacrament of marriage and the Roman Catholic understanding, how Luther understands it, he sees marriage as a good thing. It's a, it's it's a it's a, an act of fidelity. Yeah, and a way that we can have confidence that this is something God has designed for us. But it's not promise. It's not a promise, and yeah. and I think pretty much everybody would agree. That it's not, by the Lutheran definition, it doesn't quite fit. God doesn't promise that this is going to work. That's yeah. not, that's not part of the, that's not part of the mix here. And this is an important moment for us to just say that this idea of what is a sacrament is somewhat weak yet to decide that in a way, in that we can say in the Roman Catholic system, it's da, 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 and that's why we can have seven. Or Martin Luther can say it's this, this, and this, and that's why we have two. Um, the word sacrament doesn't appear in the Bible. Now, Luther does have a discussion about the Latin Vulgate translating mysterium as sacrament, and we can look at that, especially related to um, that word. But so, as I talk with Roman Catholics about the number of sacraments and how many sacraments Lutherans have, some of what I go is let's talk about what your definition of sacrament is, and then I'll say, here's my definition of a sacrament. And I, sometimes they'll even say, well, if I defined it that way, yeah, I would only have. I'm like, oh, let's keep talking about that. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, okay, well, let's, let's uh, so the second, there's actually three parts of that, that sentence that we had. The, the, the definition, which is sacraments are promises given to us freely and equally by God for our spiritual strengthening. The word freely is another word, especially in medieval uh, Roman Catholicism was that was a that was a difference between the Catholics and 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 Martin Luther. Well, even and when we talk about the sacrament of penance, and that there were some sins that were considered only able to be forgiven by a bishop or even the Pope. For instance, uh, on Luther's heresy, if Luther wanted to repent of his sin, a local priest couldn't do that. Um, he'd have it, to go to the Pope. It was announced that it is of such great heresy, only the Pope would be able to have that. And so there's this uh, fencing in of who gets to and and who gets to be a part of that. And for Luther, it's saying it's freely been given to the whole church. And as a whole church, now we share in these gifts. Well, and another part of freely, the word freely, that makes a difference in the Lutheran understanding and the Roman Catholic. And this is even part of the modern view is that in the Lutheran understanding, uh, it's it's freely given. The, the the forgiveness is freely given. And let's go to confession. Let's talk about confession. Uh, in in the Roman Catholic view, uh, there has to be penance. There has to be good works that you know that are done to sort of even up the even up the ledger. Try and get all those you know. You have to sort of overcome the evil that was done in the world by your sin by some sort of good works that that sort of even that out. And, and so that's it's not free, and 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 maybe I'm sure if there was a if there was a Catholic theologian here, they would say, oh no no, it's free, but the and they'll have some sort of fine distinction saying, well it's free, but you have to do the good works to demonstrate that you've accepted or that that is what work in you or something along those lines. I mean, I, I've done I've dealt I've been reading enough yeah. Catholic theology. Well, that and I, Luther writes about priests receiving payments. Um, that they have to be sure that if they receive a gift or a payment, that they clearly communicate that it's not because I'm doing this sacrament that you've paid me, but that what you have given me is either a gift or it's for some other service I'm doing. He doesn't want payment to be attached 
to justification for, since you've paid me, I will do this sacrament for you. But rather, if a person is offering that priest some money, the priest has to make clear, I'm not receiving this money in order to perform the sacrament. I'm receiving this money for prayers yeah. or for something else that I can do and offer. Yeah, so it's it's again those those fine Freely. distinctions. And then equally, equally um, is another one, and that's, that's revolutionary in that who gets to do it. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier about you know certain certain sins had to be forgiven by the Pope. You know, there were, the forgiveness wasn't available to everybody. You know, it had there was like a a, a, a pecking order mm-hmm. that you had to live through, you know, walk through there. That was one way to look at equally. Another was equally different. was in the Lord's Supper, and who was to receive the wine? Yeah, the priests would receive the wine, and the laity would only receive the bread. And Luther's like, take, eat, was not a command just given to some; it was given to all, and so as well, take, drink, and in fact, only the drink of it, all of you. There's not eat of it, all of you. The all of you is attached specifically to the cup. And Luther says that the Holy Spirit understood the schisms that would come later on and the controversies that would come later on related to the cup. And so that the Holy Spirit made sure that the gospel writers and St. Paul would include that drink of it, all of you. That all is not a part of the institution of the bread for the body, but it is there. For the cup that all of you, he says, is of such importance and and the Holy Spirit is thinking ahead <laughs> that people are going to mess this up. So let's make sure we say all of you. Well, and then another another part of this, I mean, you, you could go back to the Babylonian captivity. I'm not not. The, I'm sorry. You could go back to the open letter and and the the, the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. And that's that's, again, part of this equality, this idea of, equal, of equality that was revolutionary in the 16th century, in the 1500s, that Luther brought to the fore, and that's also coming to bear in the Babylonian captivity of the church. So let's let's dive into the rest of the Babylonian. Now, the last time we talked about the first just communion, we signed a whole. And that's episode. a big section of the Babylonian. It's like half the thing, right? Yeah, and and there he is describing the Lord's Supper not as a sacrifice that we do but is the promise of receiving the gift of the forgiveness of sins that Jesus Christ offers. So he defines that method of how are we going to look at the sacraments with the Lord's Supper. But now what we'll do is we'll look at baptism, penance, or another word for penance would be confession. We've got confirmation, we've got marriage, we've got ordination, and then extreme unction. Last rites. And, and Luther really functions um, his discussion there about the lastness of it. Uh, if we're going to anoint someone for healing, and but we're only going to do it at the last moment before they die, we have no expectation of it. And, and, and that's an interesting one because now um, anointing isn't seen as a, a last moment. Now, I, I think in the Roman Catholic Church, they'll use extreme unction not just at the last moment, but at any moment healing is needed. And okay. so that idea of extreme an end time for anointing is something Luther really focuses on in his discussion. And that's changed a little bit. But So now let's get into it. So the idea of a sacrament. First, we should talk a little bit about that name again to remind us, um, as we get into these specific sacraments, the name of the book. Right. The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Now, um, why don't you cover that one more time? So, I thought that's... Yeah. So the Babylonians were bad guys. In the Old Testament. 
And, and they came in 586 to Jerusalem. They knocked down the walls. They destroyed the temple. They take away all the gold and all the uh, holy vessels that were in the temple. Uh, imagine Indiana Jones, the, the last, uh, uh, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant goes away and isn't found again. The Babylonians do this and they take, they leave the people in Jerusalem and Judah, and that becomes the Samaritans later on. But they take the leaders, they take the the craftsmen, they take anybody of essentially as what they define as skill that could maintain the culture and the society and the religion, and they take them away. And they're taken to Babylon. And there in Babylon, they live in exile. And they are away from their home. And, and the Babylonians keep them uh, away from being able to worship God. And so Luther is identifying the Babylonian captivity as the experience of the church in his time that the Pope has taken the people away from their home and their place of worship and now is keeping them captive to something that's false and not true. All right. All right. So when Luther first released the Babylonian captivity of the church, it was only in Latin. And we, we mentioned this in the last episode, but I think it's worth going over again. It was the Babylonian, the, the document, the Babylonian captivity of the church, that when Luther released it, it was a scholarly article or a scholarly treatise that was meant for scholarly discussion and not for general consumption. I would say not just like scholars as in like a bunch of professors wearing their smoking jackets in a, some library. It was also intended for the priests of the church to better understand how to administer the sacred working of the church in this time of Reformation. Um, so the Babylonian captivity could largely be thought of um, maybe as a forerunner even of the large catechism as uh, a document to help the leaders of the church know how to rethink about the sacraments. And then um, as we talk about being written in Latin, that's just showing its intended audience. It, it's it's a, for the clergy. Intellectuals. To get better. Intellectuals, the clergy, the nobles. It's it's not that he has a, a low view of the laity and doesn't trust him with this document. Uh, it's just the intended audience is the, the pastors and well, get them ready for how to administer the sacraments. And, and I, I, at least what I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, but the when I see Luther writing in German, it's it's... Primarily things like devotionals, um, the catechism, of course, yeah. you know, things that pastoral care. Things. Th- this is this is stuff that uh, when he writes in German, it's meant for the common person to use it today. You know, it's yeah, something use that, it today, right now. And this is something you keep in mind. So the Babylonian captivity, Luther releases it in Latin. His opponents translate it into German, thinking that if we put this into the hands of the common people, they will see what. Uh, a heretic, Luther is. That sort of backfired on it them. It does. It does. So the, the, it, it gets out there, and people say, "Gee, this is sort of this is sort of great." You know, we sort of agree with this, and he just ends up getting more supporters. And yeah, of course, some people don't like it. Some people like it. It ends up being, but it ends up being something that really does. If you like Luther at that time, you'll tend to like him more. And if you didn't like him at that time, you'll tend to like him less. And so it's it sort of really does draw the lines much more boldly than what was prior to this moment. Uh, so let's get into this. Let's get into these. The, so the first one we want to cover, we, like we said, we covered, uh, we, we covered the Eucharist, 
last time. Uh, uh, and so communion. now let's start talking about baptism. All right. All right. So Luther is revisiting his position he's outlined in a previous commentary from November 1519, uh, a document we discussed earlier about the Holy and Blessed Sacrament in the episode where we talked about the three sermons on baptism, Lord's Supper, and penance. Yeah. Um, much of this part of the document is is um, Luther rewriting and, and putting again into paper that November 1519 document. He's restating that, first of all, Baptism is a promise from God. He says, now the first thing to be considered about baptism is the divine promise, which says he who believes and is baptized will be saved. This promise must be set far above all the glitter of works, vows, religious orders, and whatever else man is introduced. For on it, our salvation depends. And so Luther is reminding everybody that your salvation depends on the divine promise. Uh, we do not secure our salvation through the glitter of works, vows, religious orders, or whatever else we may construct in our lives to make it look like we're doing something holy. The holiness of our life is found in being connected to the Holy One in baptism. So so then well, let's go on to the next part of this, which is that there has to be some sort of and I, a physical sign, but just not any physical sign. It has to be a biblically instituted physical sign and instituted by christ himself it can't be you know because so-and-so says to do this you know paul doesn't have the authority to institute a sacrament uh james doesn't have the authority well and even like paul when he introduces his words of institution uh to the corinthians he says as i have received yeah I'll pass on to you paul makes it clear that what he is passing on to them is not of his own construct uh construction it is Something he's received. And so in this, in the case of baptism, Christ gives the, first of all, Christ, uh, he, he, he actually was baptized. He, so the, and then he gives the command to mm-hmm. baptize. And so this is the, 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 the actual act of baptizing was an established act that everybody understood what he meant when he said it, that physical act of baptizing. Mm-hmm. And then he made the command to you know, go and baptize. So go and have people accept this promise. It was given to the church to on to go on and do. There's some things that Jesus did that hasn't been given to us to go and do. Um, you know, as Jesus heals a a, a a man, he doesn't then go say to everybody, "Now all of you, for the life eternity of the church, go and do likewise." There's some things that are unique to Jesus. Yeah. And interestingly, Jesus himself never baptized. I was going to say that. And that's why I was sort of bringing out that he knew everybody knew what baptism was because it's different than communion. In communion, he actually broke the bread, gave mm-hmm. it gave it to his disciples. In baptism, he never baptized anybody. But 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 the, he gave that to, because we had uh through Jesus himself a baptism yeah. of being in the presence of Jesus. We're being um just encountering the word. And But then he gives to his disciples the promise, go therefore and make disciples of all nations by baptizing. So, Mike, what's the physical sign that's in baptism? Uh, they, the, well, the physical sign we typically see in the Lutheran church is a little sprinkling of water on the on the forehead of a baby or, or an adult you know, yeah. on the head. Uh, but what Luther and what... what John did and John the Baptist did in the in the Jordan and you know and what what uh what Luther advocated was the the dunking taking somebody and dunking them because so it involves water yep and it involves 
Um, in many ways for him, the physical sign is uh, of a drowning, a, a killing, um, uh, an immersing, and then an emerging. So it's like a death, death to sin. It's like that, that death to self, death to sin. And then that reemergence when you come up out of the water. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, it's uh, our, our, our sharing in the resurrection of Christ. But he does add that immersion isn't necessary, yes. but he would find it beneficial. So he's, um, as much as he talks about immersion, the physical sign is the water. And he is reluctant to say it has to be immersion. Yeah. Um, unlike modern um, Baptists in America, who would say that the only valid baptism is by immersion. Luther is just talking about immersion as a helpful and it Sorry. is yeah the, the the critical thing according to luther is the third point which is that it has to have faith that we have to have faith and, and that this is that this is real that that we believe in the promise of jesus christ given to us right uh, and communicated it's under or uh, within that baptism it's received through faith wherever there is promise given it becomes real in a person's life as they as they have faith in it um, baptism is a washing away of sins. Um, it is, but this is interesting as he describes that. He goes, it is therefore indeed correct to say that baptism is a washing away of sins, but that expression is too mild and weak to bring out the full significance of baptism, which is rather a symbol of death and resurrection. Yeah, I, I like that. And I mm-hmm. that was one of those things, again, you know, growing up, and I, I didn't have the benefit of an MDiv program. I sort of had to learn this stuff. And it's amazing how long you can go in a Christian church and not understand, even in a, a Lutheran church, and not understand that baptism is about the, our death and our resurrection. It's not about cleaning. It's, it's about yeah. our death and our resurrection and our sharing in the resurrection of Jesus I, I heard a, an interesting sermon that I think helped me think of the significance of how we communicate this when a pastor began his sermon by confessing that he had murdered. And then he described the number of people he had murdered. And he said, I am a serial killer. And you know, he's like, this is a serious, he's really play acting it. Um, And then he describes the number and he says, and this is the number of people I've baptized in this font. And he said, and yet, as much as we have been murdering them, Christ has been raising them up. Yeah. And it's, it's like, oh, I guess if you put in those terms, it is rather yeah. serious. And, and, and it's it's one of those things. Like I said, we, we I know for myself, and I'll only speak for myself, I, I for many years, I would go to, to church, I'd see baptisms happen. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, we're, they're in. Okay, we're done. And I didn't realize that the, the, the promise that was at work here. Well, let's... Let, you know, as I went through the the uh, the Babylonian captivity and the section on baptism, uh, there was he he sort of goes off into a sidebar discussion on vows. Yes, and and, and he it's it's a rather extensive sidebar mm-hmm. discussion. And one of the things, and I probably should have mentioned this earlier, when we're going through the the Babylonian captivity, the the reason we're doing this the way we are is if you choose as a listener, if you choose to actually read it, it's very readable. Mm-hmm. But it, it's probably helpful to have a little bit of a I think guy. a heads up. And he yeah. Luther even does this when he writes. I think um, do not be intimidated by trying to read Luther because he is a talented writer in giving you a ladder upon which to 
read what he's writing. Uh, he'll, in the opening paragraph, give you the, the direction of where everything's going. And when he's about to veer into a tangent, like he's going to do as he talks about vows, he gives you a heads up. This is a tangent. <laughs> now, he doesn't quite say it that way, but he says, one thing I will add, and I wish that I could persuade everyone to do it, namely that all vows should be completely abolished and avoided. Um, one thing I will add, as he's talking about baptism, one thing I will add, he kind of is just adding, this is an excursus. This is kind of... Yeah, this is a little sidebar discussion we're going to have on vows. But the reason he puts it here is because at the foundation of our life with Christ is our baptism. There's the baptism, the fact that there is this promise from Christ that we are laying hold of, that we are part of this community yeah. of believers. And the dispute with vows is that they start to supersede and become more important than our baptismal promises that we have. And he is frustrated that baptism is seen as an infant thing and adults need something more. Yeah. And he is, he, he is just sure that if we can bring baptism into the daily life as well uh, of adults, and, and that's why one of the things he views uh, the sacrament of penance, um, he's going to sometimes talk about it as a sacrament, but later in Babylonian captivity, he's going to describe the sacrament of penance as simply our daily returning to our baptism. Yeah, I, and I, that's that's really a good way to look at it. I, the, the returning to that original promise where Christ promises us our, you know, and that we will we will die to our sins and be raised again with Him, and that is that's what penance that's what penance is, right? Yeah, and so his discussion of vows really centers on this: Are there things we do of a man-made character that become more defining of our relationship to Christ and His Church? Than our baptism. And if that's the case, we need to stop doing them. Yeah. And so that's why he puts it in with baptism, because it's basically a repudiation. These vows, uh, he sees these vows as being a repudiation of the promise that was made to us in baptism. And so this is, that's how it ends up in this particular section. Now, he realizes when he's later going to talk about marriage, that a lot of people talk about marriage as vows. I mean, even a part of the right of holy matrimony is the vows. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't see them as the same thing as religious orders. Because, uh, for instance, Mike, you, you have children, and say you would dedicate one of your children to a religious order even before they're born, um, and then they have to live in that religious order without any freedom um, because you have made that vow for them. You know, yeah. that's what he's writing about. But marriage is something that is freely given between a man and woman as an act of, he uses the word instead of vow, fidelity. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's where a man gives himself totally over, where he is now owned by his wife and the wife is owned by the husband. Where they own, yeah. they are, they are, they belong to one another. They are no longer separate individuals. They are. And you know, marriage is not defining that person's relationship as something more important than baptism. Yeah. Marriage can be talked about in such a way that doesn't replace baptism. Yeah. So, so I, you know, that there's like this long discussion on, on vows. And then after he finishes that, he sort of dives off into penance. Mm -hmm. The next, the next section is on penance. So he starts by calling penance a sacrament at this early in the document. He's calling it a sacrament still. Yeah. And, and even, um, throughout different times in the, the Lutheran church in the 16th century, uh, Penance, sacrament of, uh, of, of, um, of penance or of confession and absolution 
has been understood as a sacrament. And I, I'm actually personally just fine calling the Lutheran Church having three sacraments of the Lord's Supper, baptism, and uh, repentance and absolution. It all goes back to the same promise, right? It, it, I mean, sacrament of penance, I think it does have some biblical mandate. Go therefore, you know, and forgive sins. And as much as they're forgiven, they're forgiven. As much as they're retained, they're retained. Um, I, I, I think that Luther... His concern is that penance becomes a, a, a chain, a way that we keep people um, in distance away from the church or in closeness to the church. And that's what he's going to write about. Let's look now at penance. So when we say penance, we're talking about repentance. And he, he dealt with this a lot already. Yeah, we've he, spent a couple of episodes on in different ways on, on repentance. Yeah, and he even, you know, he knows he wrote about it in the 95 Theses. And there's a sermon on indulgences and other documents he's written. Um, so the context of penance that he is writing about is three parts. Um, and in his time period, it is divided into contrition, which is a sorrow for sin, confession where I say what I've done wrong, and then um, I'm given forgiveness um, on the dependency that I do works of satisfaction. Yeah, And the works of satisfaction are to demonstrate the truthfulness of my repentance. Because the idea is a false repentance um, does not deserve forgiveness. And so how do I know that you are truly repentant? Will you do these works? Yeah. Now, now the, the, I think it's important to take a moment. The Roman Catholic Church has changed. When I've read through the Roman Catholic Catechism, they define penance differently. The, they still have three. But now the new three are confession, absolution, and satisfaction. Yeah. So, so satisfaction is still there, and it's still a part of uh, sacrament of penance to show the the earnestness, the truthfulness, the changed heart. Yeah, but now they've, they've actually separated out absolution from satisfaction. In the old ways, yeah. it was absolution, and then you proved it out through through good works. Now they, they've, they've, they've sort of peeled off the promise part to be its own little category. And what was interesting was they got rid of the contrition at the very beginning. And so I'm not sure the theology behind that, but that's where they're at today. So, One of the things that I think is helpful, Mike, to see is that the sacrament of penance was used in a, a despotical way, a tyrannical way. And rather than being an act of promise that's being delivered to someone who is grieving and frightened for their mortality and to give them comfort that your sins are forgiven, it was a way to control power. Uh, if your relationship to the community is defined by whether you have received forgiveness and I'm someone of power and I want to keep you out of power, then I make sure you don't get forgiven. Yeah. And, yeah. and so he writes, the promise of penance has been transformed into the most oppressive despotism, being used to establish a sovereignty which is more than merely temporal. Yeah. So he's, he's concerned that this Babylon has extinguished faith and is making it hard for people to see again how God is at work. All right. Okay. So um, now there are parts of the Roman Catholic ideas on penance that Luther wants to keep going uh, that we don't do anymore in the Lutheran Church. Uh, for example, the the idea of private confession, where we actually sit down and and physically tell each other what our sins are. It is something that I still offer to people when I teach confirmation. I make sure all the 
that people know that I'm always available. Um, it is something I have done where someone has come to me and it will have uh, maybe a counseling um, where someone is talking to me about something that is going on in their life. I'll do pastoral counseling and then I will clearly make for them a, a difference, a moment of difference. We might walk over from my office to the sanctuary and then um, they will kneel I will hear their confession and I will offer to them um, as certain as it is the word of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. I know when I go to pastor conferences, uh, the leader of the conference will often announce uh, that during this moment of time in the schedule, uh, so-and-so will be in room 200, um, suite whatever, um, available to hear confession. And so it is present still in the Lutheran church, but I would say it's not a part of regular habit for people. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know it was part of the, I mean, I, there was one time, I'm going to say probably 25 years ago, I was in a Lutheran church and the, the pastor said, okay, we're going to have, you know, verbal confession. Anybody who wants to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, and he set himself up in a room and he said, okay, you can either look at me or stand behind me. I don't care. And we'll, we'll do this. And, but that was the only time I've ever, now that was a church that was in the middle of a very Catholic area. Right. And he knew that many of the people who were in his congregation were, were, were former Catholics. And so he, you know, he, he made that concession, or at least I thought it was a concession. I'm surprised that it's, it's common. Even. I, I don't know if common is the right word, but I will, if anybody is particularly troubled by sin and they participate in the confession and absolution of Sunday morning worship and they find it still is weighing heavy on them. I'll say, well, come talk to me. And I said, there's something important hearing that not just generic, your sins are forgiven, but this specific sin that you have not been able to let go, that sin is forgiven as well. Yeah. And so I think there is help in private confession. And Luther mentions in the Babylonian captivity of the church that he, he finds it a good practice. Yeah, what he writes here is, as to the current practice of private confession, I'm heartily in favor of it. Even though I cannot, it cannot be proved in, from scriptures, it is useful, even necessary, and I would not have it abolished. Indeed, I rejoice that it exists in the church of Christ, for it is a cure without equal for distressed consciences. For when we have laid bare our conscience to our brother and privately made known to him the evil that lurked within, we receive from our brother's lips the word of comfort spoken by God himself. And if we accept this in faith, we find peace in the mercy of God speaking to us through our brother. I think that's, yeah, I think that captures it. You know, for those, like you said, for those moments when it just can't seem to... So let's, let's take a break. I think right now is a, a great time to take a beer break. Uh, today's beer is Mad Hatter Midwestern India Pale Ale by New Holland Brewery. Uh, now, New Holland is, uh, is a brewery. It's a company that goes back to 1997. Uh, they, they really take this artisan approach, uh, but they try and keep things light. They, they have the, the Mad Hatter, I, I was checking out their website. They have all sorts of fun stuff happening there, but they, they really do make a good beer. And as a matter of fact, uh, they're, they're really, they're one of the major Michigan beers. I think they sell in this whole region, you know, well beyond just Michigan. Um, they have, uh, three, they have, uh, three, dis three locations in Holland, Michigan, and then, uh, Grand Rapids. I think they started in Holland, which comes the, the, the new, new Holland, Holland brewing company. Yeah. Right. So Mike, they, uh, let you know that this Mad Hatter, would pair well with aged cheddars, herb roasted poultry, vinaigrettes, 
and at six o'clock in the evening. <laughs> so you talk about that sense of whimsy. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's uh, New Holland is a, a, a good beer. Now this is this is uh, it's a pretty potent. Um, it's seven uh, percent alcohol. Not not as potent as some of them that we've had, but this has certainly got a little bit of a punch. Um, it was uh, first brewed in 1998, and then they say it was reimagined in 2015. And I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I vaguely remember having this a couple years ago, and I don't remember it being this hoppy. Just my memory. Yeah. Well, and and that is, it'll be interesting to see the roller coaster of beer styles. I have a feeling this hoppiness is going to start to wane soon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because everybody's can, doing heavy yeah. hops, at least here in Michigan. Yeah. Everybody did heavy hops for a while there. They're trying to differentiate. And this is a very, very hop. That's, I mean, yeah, when I can just taste the the sweetness on my tongue. Yeah. And, and But yet it has a bitterness. To yeah, it. this is, and I, I, I'm going to say it's, now, I would think it's Cascade hops. Oh, yep, hops, Citra. So you, you, you could tell the hops by the, oh my goodness, really? Yeah. You could tell that was a Cascade hop? Yeah, I could tell it was a Cascade my, hop. I'm not there. I'm not there. <laughs> Yeah, this is the 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 reason. Well, yeah, I know Cascade hops. I don't know any other hops, but I know Cascade hops. Okay, okay. Well, let's let's get back to it. Uh, we have so what's the next sacrament we're going to talk about? Confirmation. Which boy, he really rips this one over the coals. He he basically says uh, makes really quick work of confirmation. Um, yeah, his starting is it is amazing that it should have entered the minds of these men to make a sacrament of confirmation out of the laying on of hands. And, and just for Lutheran listeners now, Luther's conversation about confirmation is not imagining some 7th and 8th grade academic event where a person is able to make a public confession of what they believe. Confirmation is about a laying on of hands. Yeah, yeah. And I, one of the things that I always found interesting was in the Catholic Church, the big deal is First Communion. Yeah. They, they make a big, big deal about First Communion. But Confirmation is not a big deal, right? They, they, I mean, it's, it's a sacrament. But at least when I went through Confirmation, it wasn't a big deal. And it, uh, it I has to be really... scheduled around the time when the bishop can do it. Uh, and so it's not like, see, at St. Paul, Confirmation is always the first Sunday in May. Okay. Now, if you're in a Catholic parish, you couldn't do that because confirmation is defined by when the bishop can be there to do it. Ah, okay. Well, I just remember going through confirmation as a as a, a Catholic, and I didn't even realize. I guess maybe I was just a bad student, but I don't didn't even realize it was a sacrament. I didn't realize it was anything special. Like, oh yeah, I went through this, and yeah, the bishop showed up. Yeah, that was fine. I didn't, it just went right by me. Now, you know. Now, he does mention, so if we define confirmation as a laying on of hands, he sees this as not necessarily a bad thing, laying on of hands. He goes, uh, would that there were in the church such a laying on of hands as there was in apostolic times, whether we choose to call it confirmation or hearing or healing. But there's nothing left of it now, but we ourselves have invented to adorn the office of bishops, that they must now be entirely without work in the church except to lay hands on people. Uh, So for Luther, uh, he likes the idea of confirmation if it would be about um, 
an apostolic or a sharing of time of passing on what we have learned with someone else. And that's how it gets transitioned into the Lutheran Church. Rather than it being um, a bishop's work to lay hands as if somehow that cements a person's relationship because somebody of higher rank has touched them. It now is much more about uh, a sharing of from not apostolic as in a person, but apostolic as in what was taught by the apostles is now being taught to you. So there, there's no promise associated with confirmation. There's no sign. Luther talks about, well, okay, you have the sign of the laying on of hands, but that's not, yeah, that's not really linked to any sort of promise. It's just the laying on of hands. And, and yeah, the, he says and they the have Bible. no divine promise connected with them, nor their, neither do they save. Um, sacraments save those who believe in the divine promise. And if there's no communication to divine promise. Yeah. Where's the sacrament? And then the, sacrament? then the second part is, you know, laying out of hands. Well, they lay on hands when they want to make somebody healthy. They lay on hands when they're doing ordination. They lay on hands when they're, you know, the, in the Bible, there's all these different examples of, and it's not the specific laying on of hands for confirmation. Yeah. And he's just saying, they're just making this stuff out of whole cloth. And, and still today, the Lutheran church struggles i think a lot with what is confirmation um i saw in one church catalog and i it was instead of confirmation certificates it was affirmation of baptism and and there, at first i thought this was interesting the idea is that as an adult um i am confirmed in the faith by simply affirming the promises that i received as a, an infant but as i talked to people about that kind of view of confirmation they saw it as uh well, as an infant, someone else baptized me. Now I'm confirming my faith. As yeah, if I don't before like it was someone else that did it, now I take ownership. And it, it really became um, a transfer of evangelical believers' baptism or decision-based theology. Before it was handed to me, now I decide for it. And so when I teach confirmation, I try to communicate, this is not you deciding what you believe. Yeah, It's not about decision. But that's how... Some communication well, of confirmation has happened now. Well, and that's how people, I'm sure that's how these kids want to think about it. I mean, that's, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, but the, the fact is, is that what confirmation is, is that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the way I see it is that this is, this is, hey, these are the, this is the facts of the faith. This mm-hmm. is, we are a fact-based faith, right? We, we, we believe in the true history of God at work in the world in Jesus Christ. And yeah. we want to make sure that um, people know these truths. But I think confirmation is also about just equipping someone for living in the body of Christ. Yeah. What does it look like to be a participant in the body of Christ? I, I think of almost uh, confirmation as uh, a continuing ed class that someone would go to to learn how to use, um, say, as in a hospital, Eric or Epic or whatever that... Uh, management software is that nurses have to use yeah i i I have so i i'm not a big fan of making too much ceremony about confirmation but i think there is enough tradition in the church that i'm not gonna like say all right next week we're abolishing it yeah yeah so so let's go on to the next one which is marriage marriage now marriage is a he has quite a bit to say about marriage he does and a lot of it becomes uh contextual for his time when priests were not allowed to marry and so marriage is seen as something coarse, something that only the weaker people have to do. But if you're really holy and you're really sacred, then you won't get married. And so he, in his discussion of marriage, 
wants to restore it as something that is divinely instituted by God uh, for us to share time together with those we love and to procreate and have children and share this blessing. But it's not a sacrament. Yeah. And he goes into, it starts out, he says, hey, how could it be a sacrament? Marriage has gone well before any promises from the promises. Before Christ. Before Christ. Yeah. Christ was not there to when the first marriages happened. And then we also confess that well, non-Christian marriages are valid. Well, he wasn't walking this earth, I guess I should yes. say. I need to clarify that. And he's, yeah, and, and so that's right. So a, a non-Christian marriage is just as valid as a Christian marriage. Now, earlier in our introduction, we were talking about the word sacrament. I said the word sacrament's not in the Bible. And so we can have some ability to find this word on our own. If one church body wants to define sacrament one way and another church body wants to define sacrament another way, we can kind of do that because the word sacrament isn't in the Bible. But in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul writes... In the Vulgate, right? Well, so in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, the two shall become one. This is a great sacrament. sacrament, uh, It depends on which translation you're talking about. Which translation. And what Paul writes there, and this is a great mystery. Now, it is understanding that in the Eastern Orthodox... The word they use for sacrament is mystery. All right. The great mysteries of the church, which are revealed um, among the faithful as we participate in the word of God. So if in the Eastern Orthodox they translate mysterion as sacrament and use it in that way, then it's understandable. Jerome, as he's translating the scriptures into the Vulgate, the Latin, uh, that he would use the word sacrament. Yeah. But... Then, as Jerome may do that, um, now you translate up to a thousand years later in Luther's time, and now everyone has taken that Ephesians 5 word sacrament there, and now is taking it out of context. I think it's helpful to know that the way that Luther attacks the sacrament of marriage is a wonderful look at how to do biblical interpretation. All right. He doesn't uh, just devolve into take a verse and then quickly jump 20 steps away from that verse and talk about some sort of allegory. He looks at the specific words in the text. He tries to go back to the original language to make sure we are interpreting it the right way and haven't gotten flummoxed by um, a word in translation that may mean multiple things. And then we pick definition three when really it's definition one in your list by going back to the original language there's a chance to be able to say then he looks at how this word mysterion is used in other parts of scripture and in other parts of the church and then he says all right so if we take the language we take how it's used in other parts of scripture we look at how um, it's been used in the church body before we got stuck on this one definition now we start to see what paul wrote yeah. And so I think it's helpful to just see that this quotation from the Vulgate um, is a divergence from the Greek original and that English language, English versions now, like if you go to your ESV, they don't put the word sacrament. There. They put they, mystery. They right? put the word mystery because mysterion is the, the Greek word there. And so we just really, when we write mystery, are just uh, transliterating the Greek word into English. Okay. We're not translating it. We're just leaving it as mystery. And by doing that, it's become its own English word. Okay. Okay. uh, Luther is able to do this translation work with the Vulgate comparing it to the Greek because there is, in the 16th century, this great awakening of going back to the sources. 
uh, in Erasmus. Uh, he was uh, uh, a Dutch scholar who has published a Greek New Testament in 1516. And Luther used Erasmus's work as soon as it came out. Um, and it was an instrumental part of the way theology was being taught in Wittenberg. Go back to the sources. Yeah, so the, that's what this, the, the humanist movement of the, the 16th century, of the early 1500s, it's difficult to overstate the importance of the humanist movement. Now, the humanist movement actually goes back to like over a hundred years before the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a, a fractured, fragmented uh, movement that was going on and a lot of arguments internal to it. And it's really Luther coming in and bringing the Bible and, and into this mix really gave a lot of power to a lot of the, the humanist discussion. But that's that's a whole different discussion. I, we don't want to get too far off the field here. I think the the way the sacrament of marriage is discussed by Luther in the Babylonian captivity is of such great value, not only for the way he talks about marriage as something that's been given by God for us, uh, for all people, and that there's not a difference between whether the clergy or the laity get married, but also just simply the way he brings uh, the scriptures into this argument. He doesn't create some sort of big philosophical, um, logical step-through-step -step argument and then bring scripture as a footnote. Yeah. His argument is f solidly built on what does the Bible say. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was now he has an extensive complaint as you continue reading in this. He has an extensive complaint about the way the medieval Roman Catholic Church reached into every aspect of people's personal lives. And at one point he says, he says, the church openly sold to men the pupenda of both sexes. And the pupenda was a word, that was a $5 word I had never heard before. And I had to go look it up. I had to go look up. What is yeah. it? What the heck is pupenda? And pupenda is, is an, a person's external genitalia. So it's, he's really being coarse here. You know, mm -hmm. this is, this is, you know, basically saying, hey, the church is selling sex, you know, through, through marriage. And I don't know what exactly he means by that. I, I guess my assumption, uh, well, let's, let's read what he says. Uh, he says, oh, worthy trade for, uh, talking about this, he says, oh, worthy trade for our pontiffs to ply instead of the ministry of the gospel, which in their greed and pride they despise being given up to a reprobate mind with utter shame and infamy. And all I could think of is that it's, he's getting into this, this place where the, the Roman Catholic Church is reaching into the very details, the, including the, the, the bedroom uh, of, of the people and saying, that okay, well, you know, let's let's. Uh, you want to get a divorce? Fine, we'll give you an annulment. It'll cost you this much, you know, and you can go and yeah. Uh, well, uh, some of it was the idea is you couldn't get married to someone you had a spiritual affinity to, uh, a godparent relationship to, or someone that maybe was in a similar confraternity like the um, who the Knights of Columbus. Okay, and, and that. Uh, these spiritual affinity relationships you could be bought away from. And so the idea is if the local church didn't want you to get married to somebody, they had all these sorts of rules that they had created for why you couldn't get married to that person because of relationships of affinity. Yeah. And then 
if you really wanted to get married to that person, you or could throw a couple bucks at them and you'd be good to go. You'd be good to go. You could buy your way into that. And so by creating these artificial speed bumps, uh, then they could say, well, it's there's a speed bump going that way, but for a toll, you can go this way. Yeah. And and that is what he's talking about, the sale of, of sex, is uh, by controlling who could get married and then discussing who can get divorced in an ailment and who who can afford that. Yeah, it was... Yeah, you know, I like and when you read Luther, it's often that he makes these mm, colorful. Yeah, uh, he gets colorful pretty often, and and it's always enjoyable. It's fun to, to 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 read it, but you have to sometimes take a moment and do a little research on what exactly is he talking about because a lot of it is lost. At least this was one example yeah. where it was sort of lost to me. What he was talking about when when he was when he was saying this. Um, now, the, there's a lot of modern complaints on the Roman Catholic. They, you know, that the Roman Catholic Church today reaches into people's sex lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I want to make clear that Luther is specifically talking about the kinds of things you just talked about, where it's uh, the Roman Catholic Church today doesn't do that kind of thing. You know, they're not they're not doing where they set up ridiculous speed bumps there's like, still some people that would talk about the annulments as a way for uh tyranny to rule in the church as someone who may want to get an annulment so they want to be able to marry somebody else and they come up with some explanation for why they could get appropriately disentangled from a marriage and the processes for annulments just seems to be um, it's burdensome. I know that. That's I, a good I, word for it. I, I know. I know friends who've gone through that, and it is very. It's a very difficult process. Um, but the uh, you know one thing that is for sure is that nobody buys their way no. out of a out of a marriage in the Catholic Church that no. I know of. You know, no, it's not Catholic money, Church. but no. it, it may be uh, privilege. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that might be. And I, I guess I'm going to be very yes. careful where we step here because this yeah, is sort of it thin does ice. get beyond things and. I have to realize sometimes how many times I've watched Law and Order or something like that may shape. Yeah, yeah you've got to be careful. <laughs> fiction does not define nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, now, the next thing to look at is the sacrament of, of ordination. Yeah. And, and so we're going to move on to that. Uh, there's more things we could be talking about in terms of marriage because really Luther does spend a considerable amount of time there. But now we just want to be able to move on to the sacrament. Um, and here's what he says about ordination. Of this sacrament, the Church of Christ knows nothing. It is an invention of the Church of the Pope. Uh, not only is there nowhere any promise of grace attached to it, but there's not a single word said about it in the whole New Testament. It is ridiculous to put forth as a sacrament of God something that cannot be proved to have been instituted by God. And he goes on to say, The Church can give no promises of grace that is the work of God alone, though. therefore she cannot institute a sacrament. So this is something of uh, defining of authority in the church. For Luther, the authority and foundation, the, the thing upon which doctrine sits, is the word of God. Not the word of God and tradition and the Pope. Yeah. It's just the word of God. Yeah. And if we're going to do something and say it's a sacred work of God at work in the church then we have to be able to demonstrate, do the scripture say anything about it? And he's like, no. Yeah. Now, this is another area where Luther, in this part of the Babylonian captivity, goes off. Uh, adjacent yes. discussion 
talks about Dionysius, which is a, I think, second century. So, so Dionysius, the Areopagite, was someone that Saint Paul talked to. Okay. Okay. So then there is this document that's moving through the church in the Middle Ages, um, that's describing the authority of the church. Okay. And Luther is questioning the legitimacy of this document. And it, it later, through much scholarly work, it's found to have come not from the first century, um, from a companion of St. Paul, but from 500. Okay. And so Luther, as he's writing about the Dionysian document, is really concerned that nowhere else in Scripture um, or else in the church, in the early church, is anything this guy is proposing is of the authority of the church is supported by Scripture. So if it's not anywhere else, how can we give so much power to the church based on one document that is maybe even questionable in its source? Yeah, yeah. And Luther doesn't question it based on having found the 500-year-old do uh, the document from year 500 or something like that. He questions it by saying, does this fit with Scripture? And I think... His scholarship really is revealed there as not as much a forensic um, looking at maybe the vocabulary or that is more appropriate to centuries after St. Paul, which is the way kind of now it's diagnosed as being a forgery. Yeah. He's not looking at it in a forensic way, but just saying it doesn't fit with Scripture. It doesn't fit with the other documents, the scriptural documents that we have from that same era. It's this weird document that's different. Than everything mm -hmm. else, and so that's that's a you know so the, that's a uh, an excursus that he did. Yeah, and and I, I think uh, the, and then he finishes up by t uh, on ordination by talking about the priesthood of all believers. He says, "Let everyone therefore who knows himself to be a Christian be assured of this: that we are all equally priests. That is to say, we have the same power in respect to the word and the sacraments. However, no one may make use of this power except by the consent of the community." Or by the call of a superior. And that last line is pointing to what modern ordination means in the church. It is the consent in of the, the Lutheran church. In the Lutheran church, ordination is a sign uh, that the community of believers has consented that this man um, should be able to publicly preach, teach, and administer the sacraments for the benefit of the community. Okay. And ordination does not give to a pastor some sacred power that makes it so that when he is celebrating the words of institution, he is establishing it as a sacrament to our benefit. There is nothing in ordination that makes me more holy or magical or anything like that. Yeah. Ordination is just a public recognition of the community that I am someone that is equipped to publicly preach and teach. Ah, uh, all right. It's okay. not a, it's not a, um, a holy attribute that I have that someone else does. A special indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you know is working just in Evan Gartner, right? Know, or, and, and, and his and his best friends. You know, you know and it it is strange. I remember after one service, um, someone came up to me and said, "I can totally tell you're a holy man of God." There was just this blue vibe about you as you're preaching, and I'm like, um, I, I I don't know what to say. I'm glad you were able to hear God's word today. Yeah, but I don't want at the end of that conversation to think that. Yeah, there's through something. my ordination, I've been given a blue vibe that someone Ooh. saw. Oh, yeah, it's a so, little freaky there. It was, it was awkward. So, uh, I, I guess maybe I'm just not a hippie guy enough to a flower child to quite <laughs> understand what she meant. Yeah, 
So, um, so that was the so that pretty that's much that's ordination. That's ordination. The last one is extreme unction, unction or we, I guess more popularly known as it's last, last rites. And, and this is the anointing of oil and the laying out of hands for the sick. Uh, this is coming from the scriptures of James, where he says, if anyone among you is uh, sick, to call the elders and to have uh, anointing of oil and laying out of hands. And so the medieval uh, scholars would say, well, there you go. You have a promise, promise of forgiveness. You have a sign of oil. You're ready to go, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that that would be now Luther... First uh, argument is James does not have the authority. Only Christ can make a promise for God. James can communicate uh, and help us to interpret God's word, but uh, he doesn't get to institute something that Christ doesn't institute. And his second argument is that this is a passage, uh, it's about anybody who's sick. Uh, uh, With the goal of making them well. Yes. So- which is... I mean, so fundamental to his argument about extreme unction is that people are using this when someone is about to die. And he says, this is about helping someone get better. Yeah. And there's almost a disappointment. You can hear in his, his time period, there's a disappointment if you give last rites to someone and they get better. They're like, oh, I have to do it again, I guess. What, what a waste. What a waste. <laughs> what a waste of, of oil. Yeah, and, and so, uh, yeah, it's this, it's this hope that, the, that they're going to get well. And, and so it's, you know, it's important that the, the, now he says that it's important that a sacrament needs to be effective is one yes. of the big points he makes. He says it, a, a sacrament needs to be effective. Now, if the point of this is for somebody to get well, well, you know, why some, is it they so well often don't get well? Yeah. Well, he, he comments, uh, now it promises health and recovery to the sick as the words plainly say, the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. That's James five fifteen. But now Luther goes on. But who does see that this problem is seldom, if ever, fulfilled? Scarcely one in a thousand is restored to health. And when one is restored, nobody believes that it came about through the sacrament, but the, through, through the working of nature or of medicine. Indeed, to the sacrament, they ascribe the opposite effect, that this has been a part of the person's dying. Yeah. So... It's sort of like a giving up is what the, you know, so, so Luther he, does want people to get better. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't want, and he does want us to offer up prayers for the sick. Well, and the last part here, he makes this, this argument that he agrees with the Roman Catholic church, that extreme unction, uh, that last rites, uh, that does, uh, does proclaim forgiveness. This is a, a, a valid proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, but it's no, it's not a sacrament. Right. It's not a separate sacrament. It's just the the standard, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a proclamation of God's promise. Now, here's something to consider. Luther talks about a sacrament delivery of a promise that is received by faith. And when he talks about a stream unction, he says, James made careful and diligent provision in this case by attaching the promise of healing and the forgiveness of sins not to the unction, but to the prayer of faith. So the affecting agent on a person getting better is the prayer of the faithful. A sacrament, though he says, does not demand prayer and faith as the affecting agent. Mm. The thing that makes a sacrament effective is the delivery of the promise. Yeah. And so... So it's actually, it's, it's it, the whole construction of this, of, of extreme unction, is very different than the construction of a sacrament in Luther's yeah. definition. And, and when I talk about sacraments in um, a college class that I taught uh, about just the basics of, of Lutheran confessions and, and Lutheran doctrine, I, I made a point of communicating that prayer is not a sacrament. 
Okay. And and that's somewhat coming from the way Luther discusses extreme unction. Yeah. That prayer is a work that we do. Mm. It's not, uh, and it is something that, and, and earlier when I was talking about a pastor being paid, he shouldn't be paid for the sacrament. Like he's talking about side work that a pastor might be doing. He said uh, a pastor shouldn't get paid for doing a sacrament, but he could be paid for doing prayers. Because prayers are a work that that pastor is doing, while sacraments are the work of God that he's delivering to the people. Oh, okay. So, okay. now... Um, well, I think that pretty much does it for the seven sacraments, right? Yeah. And the so, Babylonian captivity is um, one of these major documents from 1520 that Luther writes that really is of a genius mind, I think, that helps... Uh, whenever I hear music... Uh, from say someone and you just go right away you know who that is and you're like how did they come up with that sound and it's just it's a genius moment when a band or a symphony or whatever is a new sound yeah and i think that's what luther does in the babylonian captivity there is uh, a genius of being able to see uh, how do we communicate to people the work of God, and he hinges on this word promise in a way that people weren't doing beforehand. Yeah, this is completely new. Now, uh, let's sum this up. Uh, this is Luther, uh, sums it up, says, Hence there are, strictly speaking, but two sacraments in the church of God, baptism and the bread. For only in these two do we find both the divinely, divinely instituted sign and the promise of forgiveness of sins. The sacrament of penance, which I added to these two, lacks the divinely instituted visible sign and is, as I have said, nothing but a way and a return to baptism. So that's Luther's summary of the of the Babylonian captivity. Yeah, so there is a fallout. There is a complete break from the Roman Catholic Church in many ways because if the, the central function of the church is to communicate the sacraments and Luther changes what the sacraments are he's changing the cent- central function and so and then you know yeah as as luther def- redefined the sacraments as a promise of god found in scr- scripture along with physical signs he really was effectively creating a new religion once once you redefine the sacraments you have redefined you have created a new religion now for him though i want you to realize mike that the idea of seven sacraments as a system was not generally accepted until 1439 um, with uh, Peter Lombard and his sentences, and then the um, made official doctrine by the Council of Florence in 1439. Oh, so this was new. It was. And so Luther, as he's writing in the Babylonian captivity, is really writing about what he sees as a distortion that's happened in the last hundred years. Now, I thought, because I know a little bit about the Greek Orthodox Church, and they have seven sacraments also. I was sort of surprised that, now, uh, this is surprising to me. This is something I didn't know, uh, because I thought that the Greek Orthodox Church did everything they could to maintain, you know... I mean, there was, there is, there is vows, there is extreme unction, there is ordination. I mean, there are these actions happening in the life of church. Um, Even that Dionysian... Um, um, ecclesiastical hierarchy that he disproves when he's talking about ordination. That was written and enumerated six sacraments. Um, and those six sacraments are baptism, Eucharist, unction, ordination of priests, ordination of monks, and burial, burial rites. So he's noting that even in his time period, people are placing incredible authority and weight on how many sacraments there should be 
on a document. He says, have you read the document? It has six sacraments, and they're not even the seven you guys are talking about. Yeah, it's different. So, And so as we think about Luther starting something new, as you were starting to kind of describe the fallout, yeah, yeah. it's more which fits he was trying, trying reformation. To go, well, he was trying to go back to what he could really ground in the Bible. Yeah, so it's not as much new religion as restored religion. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a thank you for that clarification. Uh, so I think that does it. That does it for today. Uh, that is the end of the Babylonian captivity of the church. The next episode will is be another in... great book from 1520, Freedom of a Christian. Now, it's an exciting th- one. This is a... actually this is one of my favorites. I do like it. I and, do. And, I'm not uh, being silly. The, and the, the thing with uh, freedom. Now, this is the last of the three great documents released in 1520 that really i think define lutheranism if you have yeah. to if, if you want a quick definition of lutheranism well you're going from get, luther's writings from luther's writings this yes. is a really great place to start now i mean we got the small catechism i mean oh yeah there's yeah. lots of good stuff but these three i think get a person into the framework of luther's like how does he even define a sacrament well i mean i can read in the small catechism Blah, blah, blah. But here you, I think it. It's a more, over. it's a more thorough treatment than mm-hmm. we get in the small category. It brings or it the into large, dialogue. It or brings even the it large category. Yeah. You know, so, so we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you to Josh. Uh, Josh provides uh, space for us to record. Every time we come, he's improved the space a little bit. There's more egg crate on the wall. There's something better. And we are thankful for Josh. Yeah, he does a great job. And then uh, thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan, on all their great support that they give, uh, give Evan and us. Now, Luther's Works, Volume 36, is where you can find the Babylonian captivity. Uh, then we have uh, the Vatican website. Well, yeah. We, we, we want to make sure we're accurate. And we, you yeah. t- test what we say. Write back to us. You can write to us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Let us know if you would like to host a road trip. Let us know if there's a correction. Um, let us know if something we've described, uh, we do so in an unfair manner. Yeah. Uh, we want to be fair, and yet... Um, evaluative as well absolutely uh you can also check us out uh at our website uh, graceontap-podcast.com uh or catch us on facebook at grace on tap podcast uh we'd appreciate any reviews you could put on itunes it really does help to get the word and we're out. now on stitcher and TuneIn and some other uh resources as well and i think yeah and if, that's another thing if you're having trouble uh you know if you hear this and then you just from somebody says hey you know, uh, I, I you go and tell somebody about us, and then they say, I can't get it because it's, you know... Something's whatever. wrong. Something's and wrong. we found out. Uh, we were limited uh, by something on our website to 10 episodes, and every time we added an episode, it was deleting an early episode. We fixed that. All the episodes are available now. Yeah. And so, that came about because someone talked to us. Yeah, so please, 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 give us a shoot us a note. We really appreciate it. Prost. Prost.